0: let Scripture reading for this morning will be taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 1 through 13. That'll be page 1540 in the pew Bible. When you arrive to that, please stand with us.
1: Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going to go out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way out to buy oil, the bridegroom did arrive. The virgins who were already virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later the others also came, Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. May God bless the reading of his word. Will you take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 554, 554 in the brown? <clears> Thank <throat> you.
2: scripture text this morning is Matthew 25. Matthew 25. The last time we were in this series, the gospel that Jesus preached, i dealt with the parable of the wicked tenants a landowner purchased a vineyard and then he renovated it with all of the things that were necessary for the production of grapes he built a hedge grapevines a watchtower a wine press everything then he rented the vineyard to sharecroppers with the deal that at harvest they would pay him a small percentage of the crops Harvest day came. The landowner sent his household servants to collect his share of the crop. And the tenant farmers beat one, stoned another, killed a third. Whoa. So he sent more servants and they treated them the same way. Finally, the landowner sent his very own son saying, they will respect my son. But they killed him and tried to seize the vineyard for themselves. When Jesus asked his audience what they thought the landowner would do to the wicked tenants, they answered correctly that he would bring judgment on them and rent out the vineyard to others more honorable. We then looked at the meaning of this parable that God had established a kingdom for his own glory and he stocked it with all good things. All he required was good stewardship on the part of the tenants. First tenants were Israel and they received favored nation status. Think of it, all of all the nations that were around. God reached down and said to Israel, you are my people. But what God received from these tenants was bloodshed, unrighteous behavior on the part of his people, idolatry, attempts by them to break loose from his rule. So in response, God sent his prophets to call the people back to him. But Israel persecuted them, killed them too. Lastly, God sent his own son, and they killed him too. God's kingdom was now been given to the Gentile church, and even now we who comprise that church are in danger of acting as wickedly towards God as did Israel. Slothful in our relationships to God, casual about our spiritual growth, indifferent to the salvation of others. We are in danger of losing our favored nation status. Our great need is to fall upon Christ the rock and be broken over our sin. If not, then the alternative is that Christ the rock will fall on us and pulverize us for our sin. Today we come to another of Jesus' parables, the story of the ten virgins, Matthew 25. Some will notice that I skipped over the parable of the wedding banquet, that's in chapter 22, but we consider that in an earlier message. In fact, that was the first message in this series on the gospel that Jesus preached. But notice in the story before us that we are again in the wedding day motif, if I can express it that way. Only we are in the prenuptial state where the bride and the bridesmaid are awaiting the arrival of the groom. And that brings us to the story of the ten virgins. As we come, let us ask for God's enablement. Father, send your word to us in power and authority which can only come by way of the Holy Spirit. This is not magic. This is the Spirit of God that works in the heart of every believer. He is our ultimate teacher and we thank you for that. We pray that you will take the words of the scripture and make them live within our souls. I mean, if they're just words and they never touch our heart with the truth of what they're saying, then what good are they? A Bible unbelieved and a Bible not practiced in terms of its principles for life and happiness is just as much a dead book as any other book to that person. I pray that that will not be the case for us today. May we be convicted, may we be stirred, may we be encouraged. Whatever our spiritual need, Lord, do it today. In the name of Christ, firstly for his glory, and secondly for our good. And we'll thank you. Amen. Amen. Our text is Matthew 25 this morning, and we're looking at the story of the ten virgins. The opening statement of Jesus is interesting. It says, At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins. At that time. Well, that prodded me to ask, Oh, at what time? Jesus' statement harks back to the discussion of last things in Matthew 24. We considered this text in an earlier study. I can't go over all the details in Matthew 24, but some points are necessary to our understanding of this story. For example, at that time is a reference by Jesus to his own second coming, which will signal the end of the world as we know it. At that time, you should be looking for some of this. The whole discussion was prompted by the question of Jesus' disciples In Matthew 24, verse 3. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Of course they want to know. They have been informed that Jesus is going away. He'll come back later. They want to know when's later. And what's going to happen when you come back. After explaining the events which would transpire concerning the great apostasy from the faith by people, that's in chapter, uh, in verses 4 through 14. Then he talks about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That's verses 15 through 18. And then he talks about the false Christs and the false apostles, which will come at the end of the age. Verses 19 and following. Jesus explained the way in which his coming will be revealed, verse 30 and following, and primarily that no man knows the day or the hour of Jesus' return, verse 36. Conclusion, verse 42, therefore keep watch. Therefore keep watch. You don't know when I'm coming. In another text, he says, even the Son of Man doesn't know when he's coming. A reference to himself. Only the Father, God the Father, knows. And he ain't telling. So you need to be ready and watch. It would be a great tragedy if we comprised the wicked servants who thought that the master's long delay meant that uh, we could play away our day of grace through wicked living and indulgent lifestyles. Verses 48 through 51. And so you see Jesus' opening statement at that time is a clue that he is now telling stories of the kingdom of God which depict it in its final stages. In other words, parables which teach us what it will be like when the Lord returns to earth to receive his people to himself and to judge the world. We'll see this again in the next parable, verse 14 and following, the parable of the talents, wherein a master entrusts his servants with his property and then went on a long journey only to return later to settle accounts. So we're shifting here. We're moving towards the subject of the second coming of Christ. Again, immediately after telling that parable, Jesus goes on to say, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. Matthew 25, verse 31. So we got these chapters just starting to pile up. So the story before us, and these other which follow, deal with the kingdom of God in its last hours on earth. Verse 26. Where the betrayal, the last supper... The prayer of Gethsemane, the arrest and trial of Jesus, all occurred. So, what I'm saying is if ever we paid attention then to the gospel which Jesus preached, we should pay attention to these final parables. Why? Because these stories, more than the others, speak to our age, our time slot in history. We are the ten virgins waiting for the appearance of the bridegroom. We are the professing followers of Christ, awaiting his return and the consummation of the age. And we are in that last phase of the earthly kingdom of God, which comprises both real and false believers. Most of you are familiar with this story, so I'm not going to deal with a lot of the detail in telling it, but we do want to look at some thoughts. There are ten virgins, or bridesmaids, probably in the bride's house. They took oil lamps and gathered to await the arrival of the groom. It was their task to light the way for the groom when he appeared with his attendants and to escort him to his awaiting bride. This they intend to carry out with great fidelity. But there were some problems. Five of the ten virgins took oil lamps and a cruise of oil to fuel their lamps at the appropriate time. The remaining five, called foolish, verse 2, took only their lamps but no fuel oil. That's the first problem. Second problem, the bridegroom, we are told, was a long time in coming. Oh boy. He didn't show up when expected. And as the hours ticked away, a kind of carelessness crept in upon the foolish virgins who had ample time to correct their mistake of having no oil for their lamps, but they didn't do anything about it. Compare chapter 24 verse 48 where the wicked servant used the long delay of his master's return to live riotously. So these parables have a thread of similar meaning that runs through them. Third problem, the long delay of the arrival of the bridegroom lasted into the late hours of the night and all the virgins became drowsy and fell asleep. Verse 5. Suddenly, without warning, at a time least expected, at midtide the cry came out, Here's the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! Verse 6. And repeatedly in Scripture, the return of Christ is said to be unannounced. That is, not advertised. There's no forewarning. There's no preparation time. Paul puts it this way, now brothers, you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, hmm. while people are saying, ah, oh, peace, safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. There's a different way to go to sleep. This is another way to do it. That's just to be oblivious (laughs) to the times in which you are living. Peace, safety, everything's cool. While the world is falling apart. While society is going to hell in such rapid transition suddenly it's a good word to keep in mind suddenly when you're thinking of Christ coming look at Matthew 24 verse 42 and following Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the home had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have left his house be broken into. So you also must be ready. Because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. Wow. That's pretty clear. And the one speaking about this is Christ Himself. So He's saying, I'm coming back, but I'm coming back at a time that you won't be expecting Is going to blow your mind because it's going to be such a surprise that everyone will be caught off guard. Repeatedly in scripture, the return of Christ is said to be unannounced. That is, not advertised. There's no forewarning. There's no prep time. As Paul wrote. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What thief announces that he's coming? While you're asleep. Maybe in a deep sleep. the The thief will break into your home. And he'll be quiet. And careful not to knock anything over and make any big loud crash and noise, and you'll continue to sleep, and he'll be off with all the wealth that you might have in silverware, jewelry, and so on. When the bridegroom appeared in our story, those bridesmaids who had prepared in advance for this event arose, they trimmed off the burnt wicks on their lamps, They lit them, prepared to go out to form the processional. Suddenly, the foolish virgins were startled into the realization that they had no oil for their lamps. (laughs) We can't make a fire. We can't light a light without fuel. So they asked for some of these things from the wise virgins. And again, the wisdom of these wise maidens came through in their answer. Look at verse 9. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. Now, that wasn't being mean-spirited. Very true. The wise virgins bought enough fuel for their particular lamps, but they didn't plan to be a, the merchant that supplies all the people there with oil. We wouldn't do it either. Well, the foolish virgins took their counsel, and off they went to the merchants, hoping either to find one still open at that late hour or to be able to arouse one from his sleep and convince him to sell them the needed fuel oil. But while they were gone, the bridegroom arrived. He was escorted into the wedding banquet by the five wise virgins who had their lamps brightly burning atop their poles, and when all were in the hall, the door was shut, verse 10. When the five foolish virgins finally showed up, they pleaded for entrance. Sir, sir, open the door for us. Verse 11. But the reply from the groom was I tell you the truth, I don't know you. That is, I don't acknowledge you. And with that, the story ends. And Jesus gives us the point of the parable. They always have one point. Here it is. Therefore keep watch. Because you do not know. The day. Or the hour. Be alert. Be ready. Now what's the meaning of this story? Well. God's kingdom consists of a number of different types of people. One class being those who do not acknowledge God in their life. And so they live their lives in open sin and rebellion to God's word. Sometimes willfully, sometimes ignorantly, but always in disobedience. These people are easy to spot. They don't look like Christian people. They don't talk like Christian people. They don't behave like Christian people. Their whole life is testimony to the gods of lust and selfishness and pride and greed which they serve. But, but, this class of people is not, let me say it again, it is not the subjects of this story. Jesus is not referring to them. They are not the foolish virgins of this account. The foolish virgins are a different breed. They are virgin maidens. Supported by the fact that they were as virtuous morally as the wise virgins. They were not sleeping around with all the men in town or even immorally with one man. They were chaste in their behavior, pure in their intentions. Secondly, they respected the bridegroom and wished to be present at his marriage to his bride. They wanted to be in the entourage, which accompanied the groom into the wedding festivities. They were friends of the groom and of the bride alike. They formed part of the bridal party. Thirdly, they came prepared to shed a little light on the whole festivities, bringing the appropriate pole lamps Which would allow the wedding party to see where it was headed and to be able to lead the people down the right path. In other words, they were not present to cause a disturbance or to spoil the banquet by being rude or obnoxious or disorderly or profane. They were supporters. Fourthly, they came to help, to serve rather than to be served. They were workers, not leeches. They were industrious, not lazy. They gladly gave of their time just to be present when the bridegroom appeared. Their friends consisted of the wise virgins, whom they knew, and with whom they had formed this wedding processional. They associated with God's people in Christ's church, There isn't any of us here, saved or not, who would have felt uncomfortable being in the presence of these foolish virgins. Their folly had nothing to do with their demeanor, their speech, their intent, their behavior, or their zeal. Nothing to do with any of that. Their folly was in their lack of spiritual readiness for the arrival of the groom. They had lamps, but no oil. They had a tool for illumination, but no oil to fuel the flame. They had their proper and right externals, but no inner empowerment to carry their intentions to completion. You may be the foolish virgin in the story. You're not out running with the riotous crowd of the world. You're not visiting the bars and brothels in the night hours. No, you are where the people of God are in the local church. You're with the bride of Christ. You're waiting for the arrival of Christ. You live your life as a morally upright citizen. You don't tell obscene stories. You don't use God's name in a profane way. You don't cheat on your taxes or in your business dealings. You like to sing the hymns of the church and to be under the hearing of the word of God. In fact, you own your own Bible and you read it on occasion for your own instruction. You pray to God. You seek his wisdom on the issues of life. You attend church regularly and genuinely miss it when you're not there. You contribute your money to the local assembly and you do it gladly because you want the church to survive and even to grow. You consider it, hey, it's money well spent. Oh, that's true. But there's something missing. There's something missing. All of these things you do almost, almost from habit You've been raised in the church. Your father and mother before you were churchgoers. And so, you are too. Or, or your parents were not churchgoers. And you saw a lot lacking in their lives. And so, you have determined you're going to do better. You want your kids to know something about God and morality and truthfulness and goodness. And so, and so you come. Okay, but whenever the sermons have touched your conscience about your personal relationship to God, when the Spirit of God has brought conviction to your heart concerning your sin, your lack of repentance, you have not acted on the Spirit's prompting. Instead, you have convinced yourself that you have time to get right with God. Christ has delayed his coming. There's yet opportunity. That's the way you think. And as a last resort, you believe that even if you are caught off guard by the sudden appearance of Christ, you can fall back on your association with those true Christians who have real spiritual vitality in their souls. You can borrow some of their grace, trim your lamp with their oil, But Jesus in this story says that will never happen. Not because the wise virgins are stingy. Not because they're unwilling to share the oil of gladness which fuels their faith. But because they know that God's grace cannot be borrowed from another. One has to have his own allotment of God's grace to be ready for the appearing of Christ. We who know Jesus Christ as Savior scarcely have enough grace ourselves to make it into God's kingdom. Our own sin is such that we need all the grace that we have from Jesus to be forgiven and to enter into the wedding supper of the Lamb. We need that grace. Now, if we could share our grace and our forgiveness with you without jeopardizing our own salvation we would gladly do so some like Paul might even be willing to forfeit their own salvation that you be saved speaking of his fellow Jewish countrymen who were lost Paul said this I have great sorrow And unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed. Cut off from Christ. For the sake of my brothers. Those of my own race. The people of Israel. Romans 9 verse 3. Paul could wish it. But he could not accomplish it. For God's purpose in election must stand, not by works, but by him who calls, verse 11. And the one who calls is God, who declares, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, verse 15. So the first lesson of this parable is this. You must close with Christ in order to be ready for his appearance. You cannot satisfy yourself with being in the company of Christian people as though good and godly associations make you good and godly. Grace cannot be transferred that way. Grace and mercy come from God, not men. You must go to him directly. That's the first lesson of this parable. Second lesson. You cannot forget about any... I said that wrong. You can forget about any second chance after Christ comes. Let me say it again since I messed it up. You can forget about any second chance for you after Christ comes. Jesus teaches us here that the kingdom of heaven, it's like a wedding banquet which when the door is shut, verse 10, will not be open for stragglers who wised up after the fact. Oh, wow. I am amazed, amazed at how many people there are who not only think that they have all the time in the world to get right with God, but who believe that when Christ comes, they will receive a second or a last opportunity to make amends before the final judgment. The world is filled with people like. Let me tell you, there's two things that are wrong with that idea. Firstly, salvation or entering into God's kingdom is always by faith in God, not by human wisdom or sight. Paul put it this way, Romans 3, verse 28. A man is justified by faith apart from observing Cite the law. The writer of Hebrews tells us. Without faith it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him. Must believe that he exists. And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Hebrews 11 verse 6. And verse 1 tells us what faith is. The writer says. Faith is being sure. Of what we hope for. And certain of what we. Get it now do not say. What? Faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we we do not say. Or again from Romans 14, verse 23, everything that does not come from faith is sin. So let me put it this way. If you wait until you see Christ with your physical eye, assuming that you live that long, that sight and any transformation in your character as a result nullifies faith. It nullifies faith. Anybody can, and may I say, that everyone will believe in God and His Son, Jesus, at the coming of Christ. The Bible says it. Every eye will see Him when He comes in the clouds. Revelation 1, verse 7. And it declares, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Philippians 2 verse 11. But here's the point. There's no faith in that insight. And there's no belief in that confession. And as a consequence, there's no salvation. There's no entering the wedding banquet with Christ as a result of such seeing and believing And this is why Paul says, now, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. And he told the people of Rome, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word, the faith that we are proclaiming. That if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, verse 9. Brethren, the time of salvation is now. Not when Christ comes. Now, when it's by faith. Not later, when you're using sight. Oh, now I believe. Yeah, there he is. That's the first fallacy of waiting. The second fallacy of believing that you will have a second chance to repent before the judgment when Christ comes is this. Pay attention. The second coming of Christ is the judgment. Nobody ever thinks about this. We need to think about it. The second coming of Christ is the judgment. Don't get so caught up in the story form of our text concerning the festivities of a wedding celebration that you forget the other parables that we have been studying in this series. Even the parable of the wedding banquet in Matthew 22 ends on this note. Tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 13. Verse 13. For someone that crashed the party. Trying to get in at the last minute. And they weren't really truly believers. What is wedding celebration. And merriment and joy. For the bride of Christ. His people is torment. And anguish and judgment. For all who have not prepared properly. For the king's appearance. By being dressed in the righteousness of Christ alone. Same is true of these foolish virgins. Who took no oil oil for their lamps. Again the parable of the wheat and the tares Was explained by Jesus. As the sons of the evil one. Being allowed to grow in the kingdom of God. Alongside of the wheat. Until harvest day which in Jesus' words is at the end of the age, his words. And then the angels, he goes on to say, will gather the weeds and throw them into the fiery furnace to be burned in the wheat. God's true people will be shining like the sun in God's kingdom. Matthew 13, verse, 33, or verse 37 and following. So you see, it's, it's not two time slots. It's not two harvests. No, it's one harvest with two different results, depending on the condition of the heart. So it is with this wedding of our story. Some gain entrance but others are shut out. The wise virgins who had prepared for the day received the honor and joy of entering into the festivities. The foolish versions went into judgment. There's no second chance when Christ comes. The day for repenting, the day for believing is over. And this is why Jesus warns, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. What day or hour? The day or hour of the coming judgment. You don't know that. Finally, there is also a lesson here for the people who are the wise virgins. Please note that all of the virgins of this story fell asleep and all of them were startled to consciousness by the arrival of the bridegroom. This was not simply a problem for the foolish virgins. That the elect of God could fall asleep just as easily as the unredeemed And we're just as much taken by surprise that the groom's appearance should warn us all that wise or not, sometimes the people of God do not evidence as much readiness as they need to. Jesus told his disciples, the eve of his crucifixion, the night of the Passover celebration, in my father's house are many rooms, dwelling places, If it were not so, I would have told her. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. John 14, verse 2 and 5. Boy, little did the disciples know then that all of them to a man would die And go to be with Christ in spirit long before he would return for them in resurrection. And now more than 2,000 years later, the people of God are still waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. 2,000 plus years is a long time to hang on to a promise. But faith hangs on because of the attested integrity of our God. He's not a liar like men. And Jesus in these parables had taught his disciples and now us that there would be a long time gap between his first and his second coming. But you know, time is a way of making us antsy. We become impatient or we go the direct opposite way And become complacent. We settle into the status quo. We become comfortable instead of watchful in our Christianity. Are you comfortable with your Christianity? It's all well with your soul this morning? If Jesus were to suddenly appear, would you want him to see you as you are? Would you want him to find you asleep? The charge of our Lord, keep watch, is a charge not to go to sleep in your faith, not to allow the pleasures of the world, or even the long delay of Christ to lure you into a state of complacency and indifference. Don't allow those things to absorb your life. dear Christian brother, sister in Christ. The return of Jesus will be sudden, visible, and audible for you too. Not just for the people who are foolish. It's past time for us to regain the seriousness about spiritual matters. It's time to come out from the world and be separate it's time for you to forsake your bad associates to stop going to some of the places you go to it's time for us all to repent to be aroused from our sleep and to let our light shine for christ to a darkened and doomed world and if we do not It may be that we prove ourselves more foolish than wise. This is the gospel Jesus preached. Let us pray. Our Lord, we thank you for the truth of your word, even if it stings us. Sometimes it's like a bullwhip. It's got a snap to it. It makes us hurt. It makes us cry. It gives us doubts and fears and not all the comfort and joy that we would want to have from the Word. We do thank you and appreciate you for it. The Scripture says the Father chastens those whom he loves and he does that with every son he receives because he doesn't want us to die hell bound by our own sin and indifference. We thank you for a great Savior. We thank you that he tells the truth to us about our own sin that he points us to the cross and to what it took for the Father to redeem a people out of this wicked world for Himself, took the blood of His own Son, the perfect sacrifice, the sinless sacrifice. And if we will cast our faith upon Him, what He accomplished will be credited to our account. That's grace. God didn't have to do that we could go to hell and that would be just. But in his mercy, he's found a way to save us. Lord, may we accept it with great thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from the hymnal number 203.
1: Sign number 203, will you stand with me?
2: the foolish versions of our story not prepared to meet Christ in any way shape or form oh Lord we need the oil of the Holy Spirit and his quickening power to awaken our dead hearts grant us the repentance we don't want to give the faith we don't have and draw us effectually into your kingdom this day. Soften our hearts. Help us to see how terrible sin is and what it did to the race, but more importantly, what it's done to us. It's made us enemies of God. Paul talks about that. But grace finds a way to make friends out of enemies. And that's through the peacemaker himself the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray with thanksgiving Amen We are dismissed See you tonight at 6